Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, before we begin today, if you're able to, if you would stand up with me, we're going to pray together. Um, quick word about leading in prayer. So the idea is not that you're just listening to me talk to God, but when someone leads in prayer, the idea is you're thinking the same thoughts to God, you're projecting these same ideas before the Lord. So let's join together right now. We're going to pray to God together. All right. Almighty God, your people have gathered today. And Father, we've gathered because not just that you've commanded it, but because we desire to hear a word from you today. Lord, it's our desire that um, what you say will drive directly into the very core of us and change who we are as human beings. God, we want to move forward from this place different people. So what, what we're asking right now, Lord, is that you'll open us up heart and mind to hear from you. That everything that we bring with us that uh, it has no part in this and all the worries, the anxiety, the difficulties of life, the concerns about what's going on in the outside world. God, that you'll help us to take all those things and just set them aside right now and focus distinctly and perfectly on you. We love you, God. Thank you so much for loving us. It's in your name that we all pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, grab a seat. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four. I once lost 28 pounds in 20 days. I wasn't sick. I was on one of those stupid diets where you starve yourself nearly to death. And, and let me just say this about myself. I am not a happy person when I'm without food. During the course of that diet, I was told as much by nearly everybody around me. Um, I, near, near the end, I was perpetually weak. I felt cold all the time. I just couldn't warm up, which for me is weird because I am always too warm. Um, I had lost so much grip strength that I was actually having trouble picking things up. It was a pathetic sight. I was wasting away in many senses. I had a friend who, uh, noting my lack of um, good humor, very kindly said to me the following, Thin Ben is considerably less jolly than Fat Ben. I think I'd rather have Fat Ben back. Uh, my wife said it a little bit more strictly, you are never doing that diet again. I was very happy to have lost our, her support in that matter. Deprived of food, I became a miserable cur. When's the last time you said the word starve? We use that term often, but here in the United States, most of us do not have terribly much experience with that level of privation. I'm starving. Have you said it this morning to somebody? Oh, I hope we get out before the Baptist so we can beat them to, uh, to wherever we're going for lunch. Starvation is a very real thing. And the thing about starvation is it actually includes a whole lot of debilitations for the human frame that you might not be aware of. Symptoms include loss of body mass, obviously, but there's also this perpetual feeling of coldness. Depression and confusion result from lack of food, weakness, physical weakness. Our souls are not much different. You all know when you have not eaten something physically. You're aware of it. When you've gone you know, most of the day and you have not f had food, not only do you know it, but generally everybody around you knows it as well. We're not so good at recognizing the fact that we're starving spiritually speaking. During the next month, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on several disciplines, attitudes, and attributes that can come into play in our lives. Feeding, nourishing of our souls that can take place that dramatically alter who we are as human beings. So it's my hope that as we dig into this during this next month, that we find ourselves different people because of it. Did you know that Jesus starved once? Matthew chapter 4, let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Interesting. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, Jesus here is quoting from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Moses was speaking to the people of Israel. And these people had been wandering in the wilderness, and they had known privation. They had known lack of food. 
These people have been hungry. And Moses said to them, look, when we hungered and we thirst, God was doing something in us. God was teaching us that we're not mainly just meant to take in physical nourishment. God was teaching us that we need to be nourished by what comes from his mouth. That there is this spiritual speech that God has engaged in. And if we don't take it in, we're starving. Jesus and Moses said much the same thing here as Jesus repeats the words of Moses. When we go without spiritual food, we become weak. We become small. Our faith grows cold. We get confused about life. I don't want to be pathetic when it comes to spiritual matters. I don't want to be wasting away. I want to be strong. I want to be mighty. I want to be jolly. It is my hope that over the course of this next month that we can set forth a vision for our minds and our hearts that nourish us spiritually, that we will be strong, that we will be people of good cheer, that we will be warm, that you and I become spiritual heavyweights. This month we'll be working on memorizing another scripture. If you had a difficult time last month, fear not. We're doing a single verse this month, okay? One single verse. It comes from the prophet Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is one of my favorite prophets because God, at the outset of his ministry, says, I'm going to set you like a bronze pillar, like an iron wall. People are going to break themselves against you. And Jeremiah, if you're familiar with his story, was attacked over and over again during the course of his ministry because he was receiving the word of the Lord. This is what a prophet does. He receives the word of the Lord and he bestows it. Not everybody was happy to hear from God through Jeremiah. But listen to what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, as he speaks poetically about the word coming to him. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. Yummy. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Is that how you think about the word of God? Hopefully by the end of the day, our minds are leaning a bit more in that direction. I'd like to start out our message today, though, by doing this. I, I, I really enjoy taking the position of skeptics and kind of unpacking them. So let's look at the question whether or not the Bible is actually worth consuming. Is this word worth taking in? Now, if you're a Christian here, you're automatically saying, yes. Okay, this is one of those easy Sunday school answers. If I'm addressing a Bible study... If I have a, uh, a, a Bible study group or Sunday school class, and I say to them, tell me how it is that you can come to know God better. Tell me how it is that you can grow deeper in the faith. Tell me how it is you can understand yourself better. One of the first things everyone is going to say is, read my Bible. It's an easy Sunday school answer. But we don't always live that. We know the right answer, but we're not always practicing the right practices. So let's look at some popular criticisms beginning today. I want to just see some reasons why people, many people, say, nah, Bible's not worth reading. The first criticism I want to bring forth is what I call the uh, autonomous pragmatist. The autonomous pragmatist. Now, that's a mouthful. Let me break down the words. Autonomous is a word, I think I told you this even a few weeks ago, Autonomous comes from two Greek words, autos, which means self, and namos, which means law, self-law. It's a person who wants to be a law unto themselves. I want to rule me. I'm boss here. And a pragmatist is somebody who is focused on whether or not something works. An autonomous pragmatist, therefore, would be the person who doesn't want the Bible to be part of his or her life because that might threaten his or her freedom. I have my own agenda. And that book threatens to get in my way. Back in the late 1990s, there was a comedian named Bill Maher. He's still on the scene today. Um, He is a cynic and an outspoken critic of Christianity. And I was watching a show that he was on during that time called Politically Incorrect, where he has discussions with all these panel guests. And they were discussing an issue, and a woman interjected that the Bible said, and then she filled in what the Bible said. And his response was as follows. First, he sneers and he says, I don't live my life based on some book written 2,000 years ago. And it was angry and it was hostile. And it sounds a lot like what goes on in the hearts and minds of people. Let's analyze that view. I don't live my life based on some book written 2,000 years ago. First of all, whose life? My life. Quick question If God exists, is your life your own? No. 
In fact, one of the first steps in coming to salvation is surrendering self, dying to self, and then giving yourself over to God. So not his life necessarily, unless, of course, there is no God. And then he references some book, some book. This is not Charlotte's Web. This is, this is a very different type of thing altogether. Some book. I don't let my life be ruined or moved by some book written 2,000 years ago. And here's the implication there. If it's old, it doesn't matter. This, this is an exceedingly arrogant position. It's a person who comes along and says, really all knowledge and truth kind of began with my life. When I was born, enlightenment came to the world. That mentality is absurd. Listen, if you have never read Aristotle or Plato, if you've never read Blaise Pascal, you have no idea. We are all morons. We're imbeciles. These people are, these people are geniuses on a level that most people cannot even begin to fathom in our day and age. Now, I say that for this reason. There is an arrogance that comes from a lot of people that says, look, if it didn't come out when the internet came out, then it really doesn't matter. That's an exceedingly ignorant position. The second critical position I want to bring forth is this one, the plurality and formation objector. These are people who are largely ignorant about what the Bible is. Also ignorant about how it's composed and how it's translated. There are people who think that the Bible cannot be trusted because the NIV is not the same as the King James Version. Because they don't know how we got all this. They have no idea how this appeared on the scene. Um, so you'll hear individuals occasionally say something to the effect of, there are so many interpretations, you can't honestly believe just one. Let me go to another comedian, David Cross. Here's what David Cross said in one of his comedy routines about the Bible. He said, back when the Bible was, trans or was written, then edited, then rewritten, then rewritten, then re-edited, then translated from dead languages, then retranslated, then edited, then rewritten, then given to kings for them to take their favorite parts, then rewritten, then translated again, then given to the people, or for the Pope, for him to approve, then rewritten and edited again, then re-re-rewritten again, all based on the stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened to people who didn't know how to write. So, and the implication is, you can't trust anything that's here because all of this emerged as one giant game of telephone that began in the first century and is conveyed up to this day. Now, there is so much wrong with that position, it's hard to even begin pulling it apart. This does not at all describe how we get the texts that are in here. And if you think that, you're mistaken. David Cross is mistaken. Here's one uh, thing we can take out of this sermon immediately. Don't get your theology from comedians. <laughs> Just a bad idea. The problem is, is these people, and, and this happens a lot in our day and age, somebody will take an idea and they just spurt it out. And then somebody else writes it down and it becomes a meme on the internet and suddenly it's cycling and it's got momentum of its own and people never stop to go, is that really how that works? Instead, they just go, this confirms my belief. I'm going to share this. And suddenly stupid ideas are flourishing. Welcome to the internet age. The last objection I want to bring up is the naturalist objector. And here, naturalist is not somebody who delights in nature and likes to hike. By naturalist, I'm using it in the philosophical terminology. A naturalist or a materialist is somebody who only believes that matter, energy, space, and time exist. Everything else is a fabrication. So there are no souls, there's no spirit, there's no heaven, there's no hell. Anything resembling a miracle cannot possibly take place ever. All that is, all that ever was or will be has to be explained in terms of material causation. Right? That's what a naturalist believes. Now, that being said, there are some people who hold that view. And so the fact that we see miracles in the text means it's automatically defective. You can't trust anything that's in here because miraculous things just can't happen. Oddly enough, many of those same people will acknowledge that a God exists. Okay, maybe a God exists. They're kind of deist in their views. And maybe that God has even created the world, but that God can't possibly step into time and space and do something supernatural. That's ridiculous. And so you'll hear people say things like this. No one who reads the story of Noah's Ark or Jonah and the great fish or a virgin birth or rising from the dead could possibly take this stuff seriously. It's a fairy tale. And so that's, that's how they think of this. This is just like Homer's Iliad or 
um, you know, any number of Brothers Grimm tales. John Lennox, uh, who is one of the most amazing human beings on planet Earth right now, John Lennox is a mathematician, um, a, a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, brilliant theologian and a devout Christian. John Lennox was addressing the issue of whether or not the scriptures are just fairy tales, and here was his response, I like it. Atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. Atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. So we've seen some popular objections to Scripture, some popular reasons that people don't want to listen to what's in this book. Let's see if maybe we can maybe think more clearly and come to a deep understanding of what's actually here and why this might be eminently valuable for every one of us. First of all, I want to discuss canon and composition. Canon and composition. What is this? We well, might immediately th be thinking, it's a book. The name, Bible, means book. It's a book. It's actually not. This is 66 books written by more than 40 authors over a period of more than 1,600 years. There are a number of different genres included in this book. So for instance, you have history, you've got law, you've got poetry, you've got letters, you've got biographies, you've got theological discourse. All those things are contained between these bindings that we now have. Writings in the Bible took place on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written during times of war, it was written during times of peace, it was written during times of plenty, and during times of serious privation and suffering. This book was written in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. These were... Uh, these books, these were used by individuals within the church for the first couple hundred years of the church's existence, unbound. And so you had the letters of the New Testament that were being passed around church to church and used place to place, and they were considered to be scriptures. That's the way they talked about them. So the letters of Paul, the gospels, as you see them, they were all being passed around and used by the church, but not in the same binding. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, good. Now, how did we determine what got to be in and what got to be out? This was not arbitrary that they combined these books together. It wasn't just for the sake of convenience, though it is certainly convenient to have them all together. Part of the reason this was combined the way it is is to keep out heretical texts, to keep out things that didn't make sense. So for the first several hundred years of the church, all the Christians are using the same books, but then this group came, came along called the Gnostics. Everyone say Gnostics. And if you've ever wondered why the word know, like I know something, has a letter K in front of it, it's because of this. The Gnostics is spelled Gnostics. Um, and the fact that word went into, as it's a not, word means knowledge, it went into the Germanic, and from the Germanic, it lost its G and got a K, and that's why we have to put a silent K in front of the word no. All right? The Gnostics were a group of people who believed that they could have these supernatural experiences. Now, this is hundreds of years after this had all been written. They believed they could have these supernatural experiences and channel, channel the experiences of first century writers, the people in this book. And so for, after hundreds of years, they decided that they were going to try to add to this book. So the church went, no dice, that isn't happening. They compiled the list and they called it canon. Everyone say canon. The word canon means measurement or measuring stick. And what they're saying here is these are the ones that have been measured and found to be true, and also that these are the ones that are to act as the measuring stick for everything else that comes along. So if somebody jumped up in front of the church today and they went, I have a word from the Lord, hear the word of the Lord, and they began to spout something, most of us in this room would immediately go, how does that check out with the Bible? How does that fit with the canon? How does that fit with what I know to be true? So you understand how we got the Bible that we now use. But it's not just that we have this compilation. This is unique. This is different. One of my undergraduate degrees was in comparative religion. And when I got into comparative religion, I'd been exposed a little bit through um, my, my kung fu training to Buddhists. And I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into um, all these classes. And I'm going to start getting other books like this. And I'm going to start learning what these other groups believe. There is nothing like this. Now, you might think the Quran, or, or you might be thinking about some of these other texts that are written in Sanskrit for the Hindus, or, or the, you know, the various uh, sutras, right? The Lotus Sutra. None of those things is anything like this. This is different than everything else on the world stage. If you study world religions, you'll find out very quickly, this is unique. 
It's unique amongst literature for a number of reasons. Let's just dip into those because I know you're all interested in data. Yay, data! The Bible is easily the best attested work of ancient history. And here's what I mean by that. If you go to any ancient book, any book that is 2,000 years old or more, you're going to run into some serious problems. Let's imagine today that you have your Bible, you've written notes in it, and you want this to be around 2,000 years from now. Do you think you can make it happen? Should we, have you seen a Bible that's 100 years old? 200 years old? Unless it has been very well cared for, it is very difficult to keep this material thing from decomposing. In fact, most of us, if you've been a part of the faith for a while and used your Bible like you're supposed to, your Bibles are falling apart. You get what's called a DTV. Anybody know what a DTV is? Say it, teenagers. The duct tape version. The duct tape version of the Bible, it is, a, it is a seal of honor when your Bible is being held together by duct tape because of the amount of use it's gotten, not because you're careless. Um, here's the thing. We should not expect to find a single bit of this that dates back to the early period of the church because that's just not the way things typically work. In most ancient texts with most ancient manuscripts, you're luckily, lucky to get a handful of manuscripts that date to within 1,000 to 1,400 or so years of the first writing. 1,000 years. 1,000 years different distance. That being said, we have more than 5,800 Greek manuscripts that are deemed ancient. We should not expect to have one. We have more than 5,800 in the Greek which is a very precise language. But in addition to that, we've got uh, scripture passages in a numerous set of other languages. So we've got it in Armenian, in Ethiopic, Coptic, Syriatic, in Latin. There are all these other versions of the Bible. When we tally all those in to the works, we've got more than 18,000 manuscripts that are considered to be ancient. That is, they're very close to the source text. More than 18,000. And we don't just have one language, we've got multiple languages, so we can even compare the texts and how they relate to one another. We can catch the errors wherever there might be an error. That's how many we've got. But it gets even better. Can I tell you something I learned this morning? So um, there's this weird thing that started happening around the first, second century where Egyptians stopped mummifying a lot of people and they, there was this popular trend where instead of mummifying, mummifying people, they were burying them as is, but they would put on a burial mask. These were masks that were typically covered in gold and silver, and they just kind of fitted them to the person's face. But you know how they made them? They used papyrus, one of the writing implements that were there, and they made paper mache. And then they'd overlay it on the person's face. Guess what we've discovered? When you start pulling that mask apart, there's layer upon layer upon layer of ancient text. And guess what's in those ancient texts? About 5% of all those texts are scripture. And so we have just extraordinarily boosted the number of ancient scriptures we've got that verify what's in here. Um, the, uh, let's see, Josh McDowell, who was, who's purchased a number of these masks himself and began the deconstruction process, says we've now got more than 66,000 ancient texts. Doesn't sound like a fairy tale. And here's the thing, when we get this Bible, we didn't get it from another Bible and from another Bible from another Bible. If you've got the NIV, if you have the New American Standard Bible or the Amplified Bible, most any Bible you've got is not translated from other Bibles, it's translated from the source text. Believe it or not, we actually have a better understanding of what was in the New Testament now than they might have even had in that day and age. Because there's so much and such a breadth that we can actually compare to one another. All right. Our scriptures also have a much smaller time span between the dates where they were initially written and the copies we have. So you guys have heard of Aristotle, right? Do you know how we know what we know about Aristotle? We have five ancient manuscripts. Five. Five ancient manuscripts, um, the first of which is dated to 1,400 years after Aristotle lived. All right? That's a long ways away. When's the last time you heard an Aristotle doubter? You can't believe anything that Aristotle says. Have you ever heard that? Generally not, right? And yet the New Testament scriptures are 
radically more foundational based upon the ancient manuscript evidence than anything else that is out there. If you go to Plato, Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, Herodotus, uh, Tacitus, uh, Thucydides, Demosthenes, any number of these guys, the time they wrote to the time we have the first text is more than 750 years for all of them. Most of them, it's way up in the thousand-year range. Do you know how close we have source texts to the New Testament? Most are within 100 years. We have many that amount to possibly decades. The John Ryland's papyrus is a very old text. Some scholars have actually speculated that it might have been one of the first copies of the original. Very, very old text. Now, that being said, we shouldn't expect any of that. We shouldn't anticipate that any of that should be there, except that it seems that God put his stamp of approval on it and went, I need you to know that what you're reading is accurate. It is valid. And so we have tons of archaeological evidence for these things. The Bible is the bestseller every year. It is the most read book in the history of the world. Now that might seem a minor thing to you, the most read book in the history of the world. Think about that for just a second. The Bible is so prolific, let me, let me try to illustrate this. It is literally the bestseller every month of every year for as long as these things have been recorded. Most of the book, uh, the, the kind of the top 10 booksellers where they do like a list, a publishing list of the bestsellers, they exclude the Bible automatically. Do you know why? It sells nearly twice the amount of every other book that's on there. Every single time, every month, every year. Let me illustrate this for you. Harry Potter was kind of a big book for a long time there, wasn't it? Um, people went nuts reading that book series. It's the sixth, uh, the Sorcerer's Stone, the first book in Harry Potter is the sixth highest selling book of all time. It sold 120 million copies. That's a lot. J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, a vastly better series in my opinion, <laughs> has sold an estimated 150 million copies. The second best selling book of all time is Don Quixote. It sold 500 million copies. The Bible has sold over 5 billion copies and well over 5 billion copies. We actually cannot accurately count how many more than 5 billion copies. That is the most conservative estimate because the Bible has been in print for so long in so many cultures and so many languages by so many people groups that we have no way to tally how many there are. Possible that there are enough Bibles to give one to every human being on planet Earth. That's pretty awesome. I'm not arguing that that means the Bible is valid. By the way, if you want to know whether or not we can trust this, hang out. In October, we're going to get into the specifics of why we should trust Scripture. We'll do some apologetic stuff then. This has had more impact on human civilization than any other literary work. I don't think you could even find an atheist or agnostic, no matter how much vitriol they have, I don't think you could find anybody to argue against this. There is no question that this has gone into nations, people groups, it's bypassed languages and borders and times. The fact that this is 2,000 years old and it still speaks to my circumstance today should mean something to us. Amen? It has altered languages. It's changed the way we talk. Remember last week when I even talked about the, the talents, how that word has come to mean something different in the English language? It's done that in languages around the world. There are idioms that we use all the time that we don't think about, but they're founded actually in the scriptures. Phrases that we say. It has informed the composition of governments. It's informed the composition of laws and regulations they produced. It was foundational in eliminating slavery. It was fundamental in changing the way we thought about children. That we shouldn't just consider these dregs of society and leave them as orphans on the street, but we started orphanages because of the words that are in this book. It's pretty powerful. Now, beyond that, it is our most immediate access to God and God's work and God's will. The scriptures claim to have revealed God. That is a claim of the word. Right, so this book does not just claim to tell us about uh, history. doesn't claim to just be letters. It doesn't claim to just be poetry. This book actually claims to reveal the will of God. That is a big claim. And if you pay attention, you've looked at fulfilled prophecy, you're like, hmm, if you've looked at the unfolding of history and how it seems to be working out exactly as this talked about, if you see the miracles, all of these things seem to indicate that maybe there's a hand moving behind the scenes and putting this together. The fact that this many authors 
in this many settings over such a long period of time can bring forth one coherent, consistent, and constructive message suggests strongly that these things are being moved by a will that is greater than a human will. Beyond that, the scriptures reveal who we are as human beings. The Bible does not write about people the way we would write about ourselves. If you were constructing your own biography, there are some things you'd skip, right? I know I would. Here's the thing. This is embarrassing to most of the people who are in it. Have you realized that? This bears the earmarks of historical accuracy. Uh, J.P. Moreland tells a story about going to a uh, library in California. J.P. Moreland was a philosopher. He's, he's one of the great Christian philosophers of our age. And he went into the library and he saw somebody reading from ancient manuscripts, reading in the Greek, the New Testament. And he saw that the guy was wearing um, yarmulke. He's, he's, he was Jewish. And so he goes to the guy and he says, what are you reading? The guy says, I'm reading Luke. And he says, what do you think? The guy goes, I'm Jewish, but I'm astonished. This is history. He says, I know the difference between history and between something that's manufactured. This really happened. And J.P. Moreland's like, you're, you're dead right about that. And the guy was re- refiguring his whole life based on the, upon the fact that he was reading this and going, this is not the way we write about things that are being fabricated. This is history. The scriptures claim to reveal who we are. They have tremendous amounts of honesty there are unflattering descriptions. This seems like the work of an objective observer. This doesn't seem like the work of somebody trying to make themselves look good. It speaks to the deep things of humankind. It speaks to our desires, to our implications, our rebellions, our weaknesses, our needs, our nature. All of these things together seem to indicate that this is a discussion about human beings by something that is decidedly not human. Now, a lot of people have been trying to get rid of this entirely from history. There has been an attempt for a long time, and it's raging today, to swab this out of all history and culture. If you were to eliminate every one of these today, get rid of all of them, every one of them that has ever been, you would still be able to construct almost the entire New Testament just from the words of the early church fathers as they quoted it as authoritative to one another. With the exception of about three verses, the entire New Testament is in the word of the people who followed them. Say you were to be able to get rid of every acknowledgement of this from history, never recorded. Historians 100 years from now would look back and they would go, wait a second, something's missing. There's no way culture gets where it is or does what it does or says what it says if there isn't something else behind the scenes. They would know the absence of this just from the gaping hole it leaves. So let's return to our initial question. Is it worth consuming? Well, is it? Good, I'm glad that you think so. Even if you're a skeptic, even if you're a critic, there's something about this you should find compelling. But if you're one of those people who is open to the possibility that God may have spoken into the human experience, then you might not just describe yourself as interested, you might describe yourself as hungry. There's something here. Listen to how Peter describes the sentiment for those who love God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Long for spiritual milk. Have you heard of baby when it's hungry? How does it do at expressing itself? Would you describe yourself that way? Do you long for the word of God? Do you desire it strongly? This is how Peter says we ought to behave. But are we, in fact, consuming it? Last week, the American Bible Society had its 10th annual State of the Bible report. This is a report produced to just list trends and and the functions of how we are interacting with the Scriptures. And here's what they discovered. Here's some numbers that that ought to interest us. 9% of Americans do daily Bible readings. 9%. This is the lowest figure in the 10 years that the group has been analyzing the trend. Down, down, down. 53% of Americans report reading less than four times a year. Only 24% of people said the Bible is the word of God. 
Bear in mind that 65% of the people in America claim to be Christians. And only 24% say it is the word of God. So we ought to be reading more, and we're going to spend two weeks talking about it. We're not done with the scriptures today. We're coming back to this next week. But I want to say this, for wherever you are right now, if you're a four times a year person, if you are a twice a week person, more is better. Wouldn't you agree? We could all afford to be dipping into this a bit more. Let's talk about knowing the ingredients of the word. I want to speak about what's in here so that we have a good idea of that going forward. First of all, let's talk about what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't. What the Bible isn't. Here's what the Bible isn't. The Bible isn't magic. It's not magic. And here's what I mean by that. Some people approach this as if, as if this is a supernatural entity. And if you were to take this and set it down in front of somebody who only speech, speaks Portuguese, maybe there is a hope that that person could be saved. That's not how this works. God never gave us an indication that putting a Bible in somebody's hands was the end goal of our job as Christians. Amen? Jesus Christ called us to make disciples. Let's say that again, to make disciples. And that is a bigger project than simply handing somebody a work. We've got to talk about what's in here and get people invested in what's in here so they become learners and followers of Jesus Christ. It's not magic. I will say along those lines as well, it's not a talisman to ward off evil. You don't cast out demons by showing them this. It's not the way it functions. It is not a method for personal divination. There are people who believe that if they pick up their Bible and I'm feeling stressed today, I can just... And that God is going to speak to me. And so they come away with something like, and Rebecca alit upon a camel. Oh, God wants me to take up smoking. (laughs) Not the way the scriptures work. Now I will say this, I know people who have been brought to Christ because they just picked up one of these and started reading. But that's not because this is God's primary way of doing it. That's because some other Christian wasn't doing their job. The Bible isn't magic. The Bible is not good behavior illustrated. If you've read the Bible because you think it's going to tell you what good people are like, you're mistaken. With the exception of a very few people in the Scriptures, everyone you read about is a deeply, deeply flawed human being. Other than the person of Jesus Christ, Daniel, maybe Enoch, arguably Joseph. Most of the people you're going to encounter, who the Bible tells us a lot about them, you're going to find serious flaws in their character. Why? Because they're real human beings. They're like me. They're like you. They make stupid mistakes. They do the types of things that used to land people on the Jerry Springer show. (laughs) And when I see that, when I read it in those pages, when I read their stories, I find myself there or I find something there that speaks deeply to me and shows me what not to do. There are a lot of examples of people doing the wrong things in here so that we don't have to. This is why it's difficult to get a version of the Bible that is child-appropriate. I don't know if you've ever been reading a scripture passage to your kids, and as you're going through it, you're like, whoop, got to leave that out. Let's skip down three or four verses. Um, I don't want to have to explain this. Now, why? Because God doesn't love us? No, because this book is not a tame book. This book is not always palatable. It is not always appropriate. You know there are flatulence jokes in here, by the way. Did you know that? I say that for this reason, because we should not try to tame this. God did not want it to be tame. God expects that there are some parts of this that make us sick to our stomachs because those are the same things that make him sick. There are parts of this that are wretched, and we are meant to feel wretched even when we take it in because that's the way he feels. This book is not tame. Don't try to make it such. This book is not simple. Now, please understand what I mean here. I can explain the gospel message to a four-year-old and they get it because God makes it accessible enough that children can understand what the gospel is actually appropriated in saying. I can tell kids Bible stories and they get it. But those same stories that a child can understand, you can spend the rest of your life studying and you will still not plumb the depths of it. Do you realize how many books are written based on this book? Do you realize how many libraries could be filled by works that are just describing what's here? 
Now, don't be discouraged by that if you're like, wow, I was going to start reading my Bible, but good grief. Be encouraged. Here's what that means. Every time I go into this word, I could expect something new. Nay, I should expect something new. If God is speaking and I am listening, then this can deliver complete life change to me every time. So what is the Bible? Let's discuss it. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. What is the Bible? The Bible is inspired. It is inspired, and the word literally in the Greek means God breathed. God breathed it out. It is inspired. God set the Holy Spirit upon certain individuals and moved them to speak and write with his authority, sometimes according to his will, sometimes against his will. As as a high priest one time says, may his blood be upon our heads and on our children, and speaks a lot of these kind of sentiments, or or, uh, the people cry that out. But uh, one one high priest, Caiaphas, he says, um, it's better for one man to die than for all the people to perish. And the scriptures tell us that he spoke that from the Holy Spirit, even though he was a tremendously wicked man. So we can have people like, Solomon, whose heart is divided, and yet he still speaks for things that are Scripture to us. So we read the book of Ecclesiastes, and we go, this is depressing. And God gives a hearty amen and says, this is what life looks like without me. Now, to what degree the humanity of the writer shows itself in the Scriptures as opposed to what degree the Spirit directly imposed God's mind is a question that's constantly being debated. But it is the contention of Scripture and is the contention of the leadership of this church that this is the Word of God. It is inspired and it is also instru- uh, intended to instruct and equip us. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired or God-breathed by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is not trivia. This is not, a, this is not something that is just meant for you to memorize facts so you can show everybody how smart you are. This is training. This is meant to equip us to become who we are supposed to be in Christ Jesus. If you've got your Bible still open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at Romans chapter, or right in your margin, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is intended to train us, to develop us. In 1864, uh, Abraham Lincoln was handed a Bible in Baltimore by a largely black congregation. They came to him and they wanted to speak with him and they gifted him with a Bible and he held it up in front of them and this is what he said. He said, in regard to this great book, I have but to say it is the best gift God has given to men. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book, but for it we could not know right for wrong. And all things most desirable for a man's welfare here and hereafter are to be found portrayed in it. This is the word of God. It is inspired, it is intended to instruct us, it is living and active. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The scriptures are written in human language, in human words. But something happens when you are possessed of the Holy Spirit, when you have God's Spirit and you read this word. An academic could get into this and they cannot get as much out of it as you can if you are filled with the Spirit of the living God. This is what is described as illumination, the idea that God's Spirit brings to light things that cannot be otherwise seen or or, um, understood. These things are made clear by the Spirit and what the Spirit teaches us. The scripture is not just inspired, not just intended to instruct and equip. It is not just living and active, but it is dangerous. It is dangerous. Tim Mackey, co-founder of The Bible Project. How many of you guys have heard of The Bible Project by show of hands? All right, if you haven't seen it yet, get on YouTube this week. Be blessed. It's one of the best things that, to have come from the internet. The Bible Project. Tim Mackey, who is an expert in ancient languages, And one of the uh, co-founders of the Bible Project said this of the scriptures. He said, these stories mess with you. 
And they change how you see the world, other people, and yourself. He spoke about the human condition. He said, look, we are, we're hardwired as human beings to hear stories. And the stories of other lives, they set within us in a way that like, like theological diatribes don't. So we hear a story, and you guys have probably all had this experience. You hear a Bible story, and the person's life or their experience speaks to you. It seats itself deeply in you, and it alters who you are. That's because our God knows us better than we know us. And he knows that what we need is not just another argument. What we need are lives that we can interface with. It is dangerous. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. God says this to Jeremiah about his word. He says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Is my word not like fire, like a hammer that shatters a rock? How careful are you with fire? How careful would you be if you put a hammer into the hands of your four-year-old? According to the American Library Association, every year libraries across the world receive requests to remove books. And they compile all those numbers and they put together a top 10 list of all the books that need to be removed or that people think need to be removed. Most of those top 10 books are asked to be removed because they're sexually explicit. But guess which book makes the top 10 every single year? You got that right. It is the most read book of all time. It is the most studied book of all time. It has done more to shape and change cultures than any book in the history of the world. And people know that it is dangerous, especially its enemies. Why do they cite it as being dangerous and problematic? Because of its religious viewpoints. Those things are dangerous. There is a fear in the enemy's camp about people letting this book touch their lives. The adversary knows that this is dangerous, but if you take this in, then you become dangerous to his kingdom. Do you realize there are 52 countries that have banned or restricted the Bible within their borders? 52 countries recognize this is so dangerous that they try to control what happens to it. Of course, it doesn't stop a flood of Bibles from getting in there. I had several former students that were actually uh, smuggling Bibles to China like two or three times a year. They walk in with backpacks just loaded down, taken into the Chinese church. It's a dangerous task. A couple of them got caught. Bibles go to dangerous places in the world because Christians know how important this is too. So what should I expect If I'm going to let this change my life, if I'm going to let this start touching my life on a day-by-day basis, what should I expect to have to do? Next week, we're going to dig deeply into that topic. But before we leave today, let me just say a few things. Number one, effort is required. Effort is required. Real work is going to be required if you actually want to get anything out of this. You cannot shortchange this matter and get real results. Either one of two things is going to happen. Either you will work and come to reap the benefits of your labor here, or you'll do what most Christians do and pretend to read this, in which case you will get nothing. You know, pretending, lying, Digging into this word on a day-by-day basis will alter you. Lying about digging into this word will, I think, become a detriment to you. Effort is required. Secondly, time is required. If you really want to be nourished by the word, you're going to have to budget it into your life. Find a spot for it. Start this week. Find some way to begin working this time into your schedule. Uh, My dad was teaching a Sunday school class years ago on martyrdom and was talking. This is going way back. I was, I think, in maybe junior high when he did this. Uh, He was teaching on martyrdom and sacrificing for Christ. And he he says, you know, how many of you are willing to give your life for Christ? And the hands went up around the room. This is after having gone through the stories of a number of these Christian martyrs. How many of you are willing to even be tortured for Christ? And hands go up around the room. And then he says this. He goes, how many of you will set your alarm five minutes early? ouch. The fact of the matter is many of us are willing to make sweeping or express that we'll make sweeping changes in our life. But when it comes down to it, we won't take five more minutes at the front of the day to read one, one chapter in the word. Create time. It requires effort, requires time. Thirdly, it requires persistence and patience. You've got to stay at this for a while. And when you are, 
you're going to know something. You will gain understanding. And with the understanding you gain will come deeper understanding. And with that understanding will come more connections as you begin piecing together how God has spoken through this. The connections will become more and more powerful, more deep, and the stories will become more deep and more powerful. You will see evidence of God's design and God's desire. The Lord God of this universe will be speaking from passage to passage, chapter to chapter throughout the whole course of this work. Your desire will deepen. You will hunger for it like a baby squalling for milk. The more you know him, the more you will know yourself. And the more you study this, the more you will know him and yourself. I want to close out with, with one quick story. I have a dear friend in Christ, um, and he knows the phrase, you don't know what you're missing. For all of his childhood, building up to when he was a teenager, he would only eat chicken nuggets, macaroni and cheese, cheese pizza, and maybe hot dogs. That was all he ate, ever. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. That went on like that for years. When he got to be a teenager, his parents took him on a cruise. And if you know anything about a cruise, what you know is this, the fare is divine. It's wonderful. And so he decided, getting on this cruise, that for the first time in his life, he was going to be bold about what he ate. And he said, every night at dinner, I am going to try something new. And guess what he found out? He found out that chicken nuggets were not the apex of human cuisine. It turns out that there are things far better and that mean more. Now he's one of the most adventurous eaters I know, by the way. But here's the thing. He had no idea what he was missing until he began trying. Guys, my encouragement to you this week is, if you believe what I've just said about the Scriptures, if you want to know whether or not God can speak more deeply and intimately to you in this life, would you be willing to take five more minutes in your day? You don't know what you're missing. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as, as we started the sermon today and called out to you and said, I want to hear a word from you. God, I pray that every heart and mind in this room was saying the same thing. Lord, I know with factual certainty that if we were to, if we were to take this up, take the gauntlet up, and every day begin reading and studying our scripture, Lord, that you would bless and honor that experience and this church would be a radically different people group in years to come. Master, I ask that each one of us takes this personally today. That every one of us goes from this place ready to spend time and effort and patience so that we may come to know you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.